This week, PG&E celebrates one-year anniversary of Chapter 11. Intelsat auction incentive payment would be capped under new U.S. Senate bill. Frontier preparing mid-March bankruptcy filing. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelton. And I'm Alex Brosman. Later this episode, LATAM team leader Kyle Owosu will discuss Argentina and Venezuela with sovereign debt restructuring veteran Lee Buchheit. It's Sunday, February 2nd. Last week, Governor Gavin Newsom of California had some more harsh words for PG&E, stating that it, quote, exists on paper only. The governor doubled down on a possible state takeover of the utility in a speech before the Public Policy Institute of California. Pardon me. Newsom stated that he has, quote, no interest in the current board or management of the company, adding that if the entity is not, quote, transformatively different, a state takeover will be necessary. Quote, if PG&E can't do it, we'll do it for them, he said. Counsel for PG&E at a hearing Wednesday struck somewhat of a different tone, telling Judge Dennis Montali that he believes the debtors will be able to resolve the governor's concerns. He stated that the debtors were engaged in, quote, constructive discussions with the governor's office and described a, quote, global consensus reached among other stakeholders. Providing a timeline indicating a February 7th disclosure statement filing, a March 11th disclosure statement hearing, and a May 15th deadline for planned voting and objections, Debtors' Council also said that they are on a, quote, smooth path for confirmation prior to the June 30 deadline for AB 1054. Judge Montali did not approve the timeline at the hearing, but said that the parties would, quote, fill in details during a scheduled February 4th hearing. Additionally, an ad hoc group of trade claimants last week indicated its intent to appeal the bankruptcy court's decision applying the federal judgment rate to post-petition interest. During Wednesday's hearing, Judge Montali agreed to set aside time during that February 4th hearing to consider arguments from the ad hoc group and the debtors as to whether an order should be entered on the post-petition interest decision, including whether the order should be made final. The court also granted the debtors' motion to enter into settlement agreements to resolve and liquidate claims asserted against the debtors by the Tubbs preference claimants following a contested hearing. An objection filed by a group of fire claimants and joined by another group of fire claimants had taken issue with the confidentiality of the settlement terms, which were filed under seal. Relief was, quote, appropriate given context of how all this played out, Judge Montali explained. Quote, if they're treated equally, then it's not improper, he said of the fire claimants. Frontier Communications is preparing a mid-March prepackaged Chapter 11 filing that would partially equitize and give take-back paper to unsecured holders of its $10.9 billion in hold code debt, according to sources. The company's $4.1 billion first lien, $1.6 billion second lien, and $856 million of subsidiary debt would be refinanced or reinstated and receive post-petition interest at the default rate as part of the plan. The unsecured take-back paper received by Holdco note holders would equate to 1 to 1.5 turns of leverage. The company had recently asked unsecured holders to become restricted in order to begin restructuring discussions, Reorg earlier reported. Discussions at the time had indicated target leverage in the 2x to 3x range. The company reported leverage greater than 5x as of September 30th, 2019. Frontier faces about $600 million of interest payments between February 1 and April 15. This includes a March 15 coupon of $114.9 million on its 10.5% unsecured notes due 2022 and a $198 million coupon due on its 11% unsecured notes due 2025. On Tuesday last week, U.S. Senators John Kennedy, Maria Cantwell, and Brian Schatz introduced a bill dubbed the SMART Act which would require the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, to identify, clear, and reallocate 300 megahertz of spectrum in the 3,700 to 4,200 megahertz range. This is referred to as the C-band. In a surprising turn, the bill provides for specific allocation of proceeds and states that not more than $1 billion would be used as incentive payments for satellite companies to reallocate spectrum. The bill was introduced in the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee and has bipartisan support. 
A prior bill that was approved in the Senate committee had allowed for a much higher target for satellite operators, stating that at least 50% of the auction proceeds would be transferred to the Treasury. The latest bill allocates $5 billion for deficit reduction, up to $12.5 billion for next-generation 911 services, and up to $5 billion for relocation costs, and only $1 billion for additional incentive payments to satellite providers such as Intelsat. Remaining proceeds would be transferred to a newly established Digital Divide Trust Fund for rural wireless and broadband infrastructure. A letter from the C-Band Alliance, of which Intelsat is a leading member, had estimated total auction proceeds of $50 billion. Also, after a public hearing on Thursday, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai said at a press conference that the auction would be on the agenda at the FCC's February open meeting. And on the island of Puerto Rico, on Thursday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit issued a much-awaited opinion affirming Judge Laura Taylor Swain's opinion addressing the applicability of Section 552 of the Bankruptcy Code to post-petition revenue. The First Circuit concluded that under Section 552, which governs the post-petition effect of pre-petition security interests, any security interest resulting from liens granted to the employee's retirement system bondholders prior to the commencement of the ERS Title III case does not attach to revenue received by ERS during the post-petition period. In a statement to REORG, the Promesa Oversight Board called the decision a, quote, significant win and said the ruling means ERS bondholders, quote, have no enforceable liens against employer contributions generated after ERS commenced its Title III case. During a Wednesday omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico's Title III cases, Judge Swain addressed the ongoing disputes related to revenue bonds, ultimately scheduling a March 5th hearing on the, quote, gating issues of standing and security interests related to the lift stay motions filed by the parties along with directing them to meet and confer with respect to certain scheduling matters and possible discovery. During argument in connection with the revenue bonds, mediation team leader Judge Barbara Hauser told the court that the proceedings were, quote, encouraging and that Judge Swain's input on the identified gating issues would help facilitate the mediation team's work. Judge Hauser added that the mediation team would file its amended report on or before the February 10 deadline and that it would include, quote, very specific recommendations with respect to what we think needs to happen regarding the revenue bond order. The Oversight Board also disclosed in a status update that it will seek an extension of the briefing schedule and postponement of the March 31 hearing related to the PREP on Rule 9019 motion, citing progress with the Puerto Rico legislature on presenting draft legislation related to the PREPA RSA. Representatives for monoline insurers Assured and National said they would oppose the extension and urged the court to move forward with the hearing as scheduled, explaining that the approval of the RSA is in no way dependent upon the legislation and that requiring the legislation to be approved prior to the 1919 hearing is, quote, not baked into the agreement. Finally, PREPA Executive Director Jose Ortiz said Tuesday morning that a draft bill related to the execution of the PREPA RSA is in the works and could be floated in the Puerto Rico legislature before the PREPA Rule 9019 motion hearing currently slated for March 31. Other top stories last week were Revlon 2021 note holders organized with Strzok, $1.75 billion term loan lenders working with Arnold & Porter amid possibility of 10K going concern qualification, Upstream energy company Southland Royalty Company files Chapter 11 in Delaware to pursue dual-track sale and plan process. And Northeast natural gas producers faced with falling commodity prices as maturity wall looms on the horizon. And while we'd like to thank Angelo Thalassanos for filling in last week, all of us can agree that we can't wait to see what's on tap with our very own Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Alex. I appreciate that. I, too, always look forward to what the week will bring as well. And the best tool I have for knowing that is our weekly forward product, which is assembled largely by the legal team. Thank you, Karen and Angelo and Alma Lucia. And it's distributed the first business day of the week at 6.30 a.m. And so Monday, February 3rd, we have Rite Aid, the druggist, exchange offer for several series of secured security. Say that 10 times fast. End is today. On that day, the company said last week that it was oversubscribed. Well done, everybody. Tuesday, February 4th, PG&E, a hearing on the motion for approval of the January 22nd restructuring support agreement with note holders. 
Now, of course, this past Thursday, Governor Newsom announced that PG&E exists on paper only and threatened a state takeover. I don't know. I think we should maybe consider giving the theories of Prince Kropotkin a shot first. That's just me, though. Anyways, Governor Newsom said the culture at PG&E must be changed. He should know. I guess everybody's noticed that fretting about the impact of Californian outground migration are not just restricted to me. The Wall Street Journal had an article this past week having complaining Idahoans and the Atlantic of the other day. How about that? Anyways, also on February 4th, we have Forever 21 returning to bankruptcy court to seek approval for bidding procedures for a going concern sale. Wednesday, February 5th, in Westmoreland, there's a trial in the Marbo J. Alex dispute. High Ridge Brands, a hearing on bidding procedures in High Ridge, and an early tender deadline for community health exchange offer. We also have our earnings from Peabody and Lanet. Thursday, February 6th, Philadelphia Energy Solutions, there's a confirmation hearing for the second amended Chapter 11 plan, and an omnibus hearing in Mar- Murray Energy. Friday, February 7th, end of the week, there's a standstill agreement expiration in acorn and that is all from me back to y'all next here's sovereign restructuring veteran lee buckheit and kyle on argentina and venezuela thanks so much i'm on the phone with current adjunct professor and former cleary gottlieb steen and hamilton partner lee buckheit Lee is a sovereign debt expert. He arrived um, at Cleary in 1976, just in time for the Latin American debt crisis. He is viewed by many as the most prominent lawyer in the field of sovereign debt restructuring, having, having represented nearly every country that has suffered a financial calamity in the past three decades, including Mexico, Russia, Greece, and Argentina. He's currently working with the Venezuelan opposition government, led by President Guaido. Uh, so where should we start? Um, I will resist the temptation to have you walk us through the details of the Latin American debt crisis, the Brady Plan, and Greece, um, and we can talk about Argentina. Uh, so a lot of our listeners are definitely pay- paying close attention to the upcoming sovereign restructuring. Um, what similarities and differences do you see uh, between the situation um, in sort of the early 2000s and uh, the upcoming round of negotiations is currently? Well, I think the most prominent difference must be the role of the IMF. Um, you recall that when Argentina restructured its debt last time, which was in 2005, the default actually occurred in December of 2001, but they didn't get around to launching a restructuring until 2005. That restructuring, somewhat unusually, um, was launched without an IMF program in place. Uh, And there are some who argue that the somewhat anemic take-up of that offer, uh, 76% of the eligible bondholders participated in that offer, leaving 24% as holdouts, uh, that would be regarded, I think, as an an anemic take-up of a sovereign debt restructuring. Some argue that uh, the absence of an IMF program contributed uh, to that result. In the current situation, uh, the IMF of course, is the single largest creditor. It has 44 billion uh, U.S. dollars of exposure already, um, and so its role in whatever is coming, uh, I think, is going to be quite key. That's a good segue into the the next question. I mean, what what I guess what sort of difficulties um, do you think the IMF could pose as a creditor? Um, vis-a-vis the negotiations with bondholders. And then do you think, it, is, is it reasonably likely to assume that the IMF will ask um, Argentina to condition a restructuring on a successful program? Well, um, the IMF uh, rules will require the staff uh, to certify to the executive board of the IMF whether they regard the, the debt as sustainable to a high degree of probability or unsustainable or someplace in the middle. And that's going to be a key question for the IMF. 
the, the tactical issue that the Argentine authorities are now facing is when do they engage with the IMF? By engage, I mean more than just exchange pleasantries. Um, do they do it before they speak to uh, commercial investors, bondholders? Do they do it concurrently with discussions with bondholders, or do they do it after? Uh, and that is the key uh, question. There are, there will be some bondholders who will argue uh, that uh, any debt restructuring that calls for a significant degree of debt relief ought to be accompanied by a fiscal program preferably one that carries the blessing of the IMF. So that would suggest an early engagement. Uh, there may be other bondholders, however, who fear uh, that the IMF economists will take a conservative view of the situation and conclude that uh, in order to render Argentina's debt stock as sustainable, uh, it would require a a significant degree of debt relief from the bondholders. So that latter group might argue, uh, <laughs> uh, strike a deal with the bondholders before going to the IMF for fear that the IMF would ask for more debt relief than, than the bondholders might be able to negotiate uh, if, they, if they preceded any engagement with, with the IMF. And uh, not to put you on the spot too much, but but what do you think is the uh, the right tactic in terms of the the priorities that should be um, where the priority should lie with regard to the the negotiations? Should um, the the government um, negotiate with the IMF first and then turn to um, the international creditors, or um, should local credit should local creditors be dealt with? Immediately, you know, what do you, what do you think is sort of the the order of magnitude here? Uh, the, the IMF's role in this one is going to be critical for several reasons. Uh, the first is they are the largest single creditor. Uh, moreover, the uh, while uh, principal payments to the IMF this year, uh, I don't think there are any principal payments due. Starting next year, they ratchet up. Uh, significantly, I think to the tune of a, about $20 billion. That is a, uh, that is a major uh, uh, hump in the uh, debt service profile that's going to be need, uh, that the, the new authorities will, will have to address. Also, as I say, there will be many among the bondholders who will argue that uh, a debt relief package must be accompanied with a sensible fiscal program, and they will look, as they usually do for an IMF uh, imprimatur on that uh, fiscal program. I don't think, uh, I, 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 if, if, I, if, if I were advising the authorities, I would urge them uh, to engage with the IMF. I don't think they need to negotiate uh, the final details of a package before they speak to the bondholders, but I would want to know how the IMF is going to assess the debt sustainability question, um, because the debt relief that the authorities uh, will be asking from uh, their other creditors will, of course, uh, turn rather critically on that debt sustainability analysis. So I would want to know what that is. The risk of striking a, a final deal with bondholders in advance of uh, knowing the IMF's view about debt sustainability is that <laughs> the IMF might conclude that uh, the deal was inadequate. Uh, to render the debt sustainable, and that would impair the staff's ability to to make a recommendation to the board. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense for sure. Um, okay, and and you you, you spoke about um, bond the the bondholders um, 
you know, and one, you know, the types of funds that certainly played a prominent role in the previous discussion or the previous restructuring rather um, are distressed funds. Um, and so uh, I would like to get into that subject, but first sort of to, to give the listeners a bit of background, um, let's talk about something that must be, I would imagine, near and dear to your heart, which is uh, collective action clauses or CACs. Um, so what are those, you know, why do they exist, and uh, when did they start becoming popular? The first collective action clause was included in an English law bond in 1879. Um, the problem that uh, bondholders of that era had, uh, most of the bonds were being issued by railroads, uh, this was an era before Chapter 11 or anything like it, so the only options for a company that uh, could not service its debt uh, was liquidation uh, or complete payment. And any single bondholder could uh, effectively force the company into liquidation, uh, even if 99% of his fellow bondholders were prepared to to uh, give some some relief. The idea of the collective action clause was that you could include in the terms of a bond a provision which said that if a supermajority of the holders of the bonds conclude that a restructuring is necessary, and uh, that supermajority was proposed as being 75%, uh, of the bondholders conclude that a restructuring is necessary, then that decision will bind any dissenting minority. Uh, that, by the way, is uh, the principle that governs uh, workouts in Chapter 11 and other uh, corporate insolvency regimes. So starting in 1879, the clause became uh, very popular uh, in English law bonds. Um, it was intended <coughs> not as a means so much of allowing uh, bond issuers to negotiate debt restructuring packages. It was really intended to prevent uh, maverick bondholders from uh, behaving in an opportunistic way and effectively forcing their fellow bondholders to buy them out um, as a way of protecting their own investments. It it migrated to this country a little bit, but uh, never caught on. Um, and the reason was technical. In those days, people listed bonds on stock exchanges. Um, and the rules, uh, at least of the New York Stock Exchange, said that to be list listed, a bond had to be negotiable. And negotiable was defined as a, an instrument that called for the payment of a sum certain on a date certain. And the question was, if you incorporated, embedded into your bond, a collective action clause that would permit a post-issuance adjustment to maturity date or amount, is the bond negotiable? And that, that concern led most U.S. issuers to avoid uh, the incorporation of collective action clauses. When the market crashed in 1929, the SEC was formed. Um, we had the predecessor of Chapter 11 in the Bankruptcy Code, uh, and it was the SEC's view that if there were to be restructurings of bonds, they should be done in a Chapter 11 preceding corporate bonds. And so in 1939, the U.S. Congress actually forbade the use of collective action clauses in corporate bonds issued to the public in the United States. Fast forward 70 or so years, uh, in 2002, uh, the IMF proposed uh, what amounted to a transnational bankruptcy regime, the so-called sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. Uh, sometimes called a Chapter 11 for countries. Uh, the U.S. Treasury uh, did not support the idea. They were looking for uh, another 
method of dealing with the holdout creditor problem in sovereign debt workouts, and remember 2002 is the year that the Argentine, the last Argentine crisis began. So the, uh, the U.S. authorities resurrected uh, this notion of collective action clauses, which did not appear in U.S. bonds, uh, and said uh, there's no policy reason why a sovereign issuer, sovereigns are not eligible for bankruptcy codes, uh, no reason, policy reason why a sovereign issuer couldn't put collective action clauses in bonds. The G10 drafted such a clause, and uh, it was first introduced in 2003, and it quickly became ubiquitous in sovereign bonds issued uh, under New York law. All of the sovereign bonds, uh, I believe this is true, uh, in the Argentine debt stock have one or another variation of a collective action clause. A long-winded answer to your question. No, that was fantastic. I uh, I should have been taking notes the entire time. That was that was really a really great overview. Um, and you you know you mentioned that the the Argentine bonds um, for the most part in the in the um, cap stack all have uh, collective action clauses, um, but it's our understanding that there is a difference between. Um, the exchange bonds um, that were issued in 2005 and 2010, and the republic bonds that were issued during uh, the Macri era, um, with regard to collective action clauses, um, can you can you talk about that difference? Collective action clauses uh, have evolved. Uh, uh, I count four generations of them. Um, in 2005, when uh, the first or the last Argentine restructuring was done, uh, the collective action clause that was included in those bonds, known as the exchange bonds, uh, followed a pattern that had been set in 2003 by Uruguay. Uh, the, the weakness of traditional collective action clauses of the kind used in English law bonds and uh, uh, the first generation collective action clauses used uh, in sovereign bonds starting in 2003 uh, in New York, the weakness is that the clause only operates within the four corners of a single series of bonds. Um, so that if uh, you have a small bond, say $100 million, and uh, once the country gets into trouble, of course, that bond is likely to trade at a significant discount. Uh, it doesn't take too much money for a determined holdout creditor to buy 26% of the issue, and by doing so, uh, that creditor will with arithmetic certainty, know that he cannot be crammed down uh, by the use of the collective action clause. And that weakness became very visible in the Greek debt restructuring in 2012. Uh, the vast majority of Greek uh, debt was governed by Greek law. Greek, Greek government bonds were governed by Greek law, but there were 36 issues uh, governed by English law. Each of those had a first-generation collective action clause that operated within uh, the four corners of each of those bonds. Uh, Greece called bondholder meetings in an effort to get them to join the restructuring, but only 17 out of the 36 series actually did so. In the other series, sure enough, uh, holdout creditors had bought blocking positions. And so that, this was perceived to be a key weakness of traditional collective action clauses. In May of 2003, uh, actually four months after Mexico had included the first collective action clause in a New York law sovereign bond, uh, Uruguay proposed an aggregation feature. What it said was, uh, 
we'll have all the affected bonds vote as a single class, as they would in Chapter 11, if it were a corporate workout. Uh, and if a certain percentage, uh, it was 85% in Uruguay's case, of the aggregate universe of bondholders agree, uh, and if a lower percentage, 66 and two-thirds of each series agree, uh, then uh, the restructuring proposal uh, binds everyone. And the theory was it is much harder to buy a blocking position in a universe of sovereign bonds than it is to buy in a single bond. This was called two-limb voting. Um, and the exchange bonds in Argentina uh, use a clause modeled on that Uruguay uh, aggregated clause. They have two-limb voting. As the years rolled sweetly on, uh, the perception was that even two-limb voting uh, was potentially uh, dangerous because while uh, a, a holdout creditor would have to buy uh, more than it would in a single bond, in a single bond it would have to buy 25% or 26%, uh, the difference wasn't that much. They would have to buy one-third in order to keep a bond uh, out of a an aggregated two-limb uh, collective action clause. The U.S. Treasury put together a working group uh, in 2014. Uh, it, it resulted in a draft of a single-limb collective action clause uh, that was promulgated by the International Capital Markets Association, I think, in 2015. What that clause says is uh, that bonds can be aggregated for purposes of voting on a collective action on a restructuring proposal, uh, and a single vote of the aggregated class will bind everyone if the proposed restructuring is, quote, uniformly applicable, close quote, to all the affected bonds. And by and uniformly applicable is defined to mean that the issuer is offering either the same instrument or the same menu of instruments uh, to all of the bonds, uh, bondholders that are being aggregated in the vote. Um, and that is the that is the form of collective action clause that is in the bonds, uh, the so-called mockery bonds, the bonds that have been issued uh, by the Argentine Republic uh, since the spring of 2016. That, uh, again, that's a long-winded answer. The bottom line of it is uh, that the collective action clause in the mockery bonds is more potent uh, if the authorities can find a way to make a uniformly applicable offer um, uh, they will reduce uh, the chances that there could be a significant holdout population uh, in the exchange bonds potential holdouts are still a threat uh, because in the two-limb voting, you need a per-series approval to be sure at a lower voting threshold, but you still need it. Yeah, that's, I was going to ask about that. I mean, you, you, you talked about, um, you know, Maverick bondholders uh, behaving opportunistically. Um, and as, as you've pointed out, in the exchange uh, bonds, um, the, the threat of holdouts is greater. Um, Dennis, and I don't want to butcher his last name, but I unfortunately might, um, Ranitsky, um, who previously represented Elliott um, during the holdout negotiations um, in the early aughts, um, is reportedly forming a bondholder group uh, with allegedly 20 funds sort of focused um, on the 2005-2010 the bonds. Um, I mean, from your perspective and your experience, should should 
Should the republic be concerned about that? Um, could that could that open a significant risk? Um, could that present significant holdout risk? You're right. Uh, I, I believe a bondholder group for the exchange bonds has formed, and implicit in doing so is that they think they are in a different position from the holders of mockery bonds. Uh, there are three arguments that they could put forward to try to uh, support uh, that view that they, they are different. Uh, one is they can look at the maturity dates of the exchange bonds, which tend to be quite long. I think most of them don't mature until the end of the 2030s sometimes. So they're not, from the standpoint of principal amortizations, they're not an immediate threat. Their second argument is what I think of as the we gave at the office um, argument. The exchange bonds, of course, were issued in 2005 and 10 in the context of a debt restructuring. Uh, the holders that took those bonds uh, suffered a pretty savage uh, net present value loss roughly 75%. And so the uh, the exchange bondholders could say, wait a minute, we gave it the office. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's offensive to be coming back to people who have suffered that kind of uh, loss in a debt restructuring and ask to be uh, included in a new one. The third argument is the one that you've alluded to, that uh, the collective action clauses in exchange bonds are going to be uh, less potent uh, than in the mockery bonds. There are, of course, responses <laughs> to all of those arguments. Um, the principal question is, if you excluded the exchange bonds altogether from this restructuring, it would inevitably mean that the holders of mockery bonds would have to uh, uh, be asked for more debt relief than they would otherwise be asked for. I mean, if it, it's common sense that if the universe of potential claims that are included in a debt restructuring is larger, the amount of debt relief that is asked from any single creditor is is reduced. So that's going to be, it's going to be an intercreditor equity issue. Um, will the mockery bondholders insist uh, that exchange bondholders be included in this exercise? As for the we gave at the office argument, the response to that is, <laughs> who is we, Kimasabi? Uh, the current holders of the exchange bonds are not the ones who were there in 2005. The bonds have churned in the market many, many times, uh, and the people who hold them now bought them presumably at market discounts, and the poor devils endured that 75% NPV haircut back in 2005 are, are long gone. Uh, so that's that's the answer uh, to that question. And on the uh, collective action clause, uh, I don't think the difficulty of using the collective action clause would be a determinative factor. Ultimately, in my view, it's going to, it's going to come down to this question of what is the market going to insist on? Uh, will the mockery bondholders? raise an intercreditor equity uh, objection to excluding the exchange bonds. And that may in turn depend to some degree on how much cross-holding there is. Uh, if uh, a significant portion of the market is holding both mockery bonds and exchange bonds, then they might conclude, well, okay, exclude the exchange bonds, we'll have to pay a little bit more on the mockery bonds, but, but it, it balances out. And I just don't know. I, I don't know the extent of cross-holding. Got it. Got it. Okay. And you, 
You mentioned, um, you know, uniformly applicable, um, that definition uh, when when talking about the mockery bond CACs, and it seems like um, a term that, that is, you know, currently being hotly debated. Um, so just wanted to, to put a question to you. I mean, you know, if, if there is, say, just for example, um, a, a 20% face value haircut and, and five-year maturity extensions, across the board for bondholders. Um, you know, if I own a bond that promises to pay me in, say, 2022, um, I would probably say that, that, that you know, I'm being treated unfairly relative to, say, someone that owns a century bond. I mean, do you think the way that uniformly applicable is defined here uh, could open up um, some, some room for some legal maneuvering? Uh, yes, let me try to explain this uniformly applicable, uh, the genesis of that. Uh, the concern that Uruguay faced when it first proposed an aggregated collective action clause back in 2003 was what we at the time called the ganging up problem. So uh, let's assume a sovereign has 10 bonds in the international market. It wants to aggregate them for purposes of a collective action clause, and let's suppose uh, nine bonds uh, are offered a very mild uh, uh, debt relief proposal, but conditioned on them voting to write off the tenth bond altogether. Uh, in effect, how do you prevent a majority of bondholders in a in an aggregated uh, voting framework uh, from disadvantaging a minority. That was the question, the ganging up problem. Uruguay solved it by the two-limb voting. Uh, so the there's an aggregated vote, uh, but then each series has got to accept the outcome for itself. And the theory is you would never get two-thirds of bondholders to agree uh, to be disadvantaged by the majority. That's how it was, that's how the ganging up problem was addressed. When it came to the latest version of collective action clauses, the so-called single limb voting, uh, the ganging up problem was still there. Uh, but it was addressed through this uniformly applicable rule. The theory is, uh, if all bondholders are offered the same deal, the same instrument, or, or, or the option to pick from the same menu of instruments, uh, a majority cannot be ganging up on a minority. You're all being offered the same the same thing. Now, the response to that from some people is, well, wait a minute, uh, we're all holding different bonds. As, as you said a moment ago, uh, I might be holding a bond that matures in two years, and, and the guy next to me is holding a century bond. Um, and and the, uh, the, the argument there is that when sovereigns get into trouble, and this is true for corporates as well, um, the pricing, the market pricing of their bonds uh, tends to converge, meaning that the differences, both in maturity and coupon, uh, gradually are merged, and there's a single price, or pretty close to a single price, for all series of bonds, whatever their original uh, terms may have been. The theory behind that is that in a corporate context, as you approach bankruptcy, all of those bonds are accelerated or deemed accelerable, uh, and therefore they all are immediately due and payable. Uh, and that's, the, that's the, the rationale behind uniformly applicable, that while it is true that if you look at the original terms of the bonds, they could be very different, both in coupon and maturity, uh, at the time of the restructuring, their secondary market price ought to have converged, 
and therefore to offer the same instrument or menu of instruments to all of those bondholders is not unfair in comparison or, or, or if viewed through the the then current market price of the bonds because they're all more or less the same. That's the theory. I see. That makes sense. So if you think about um, where the century bond trades vis a vis, say the twenty, I'm just making it up. The 2022, if they if they all trade around the same price, and when you look at the treatment relative to that current market trading price, then it is actually uniformly applicable. Correct. Got it. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So let's pivot. Um, a bit. Uh, looking at Venezuela now, um, you know, you are advising the the opposition government, um, and it, it seems like things, uh, you know, aside from on the on the fringes, certain uh, litigations that are going on, and I mean, it seems like things have, are, are sort of at a standstill here. Um, you know, do you think is is that is that a fair way to characterize it? Do you think that progress has been made? Um, significant progress has been made, and and do you think that that any progress will be made in the near future? And what 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 do you think it will take? Um, what sort of uh, things that we should? What sort of you know things should we be looking for in terms of um, uh, situations that could catalyze talks? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the situation is, as you know. Sort of just lastly, um, some some career questions or some general questions, I should say. Um, in your in your in your experience, uh, what are some of the biggest issues that creditors often overlook uh, when approaching sovereign negotiations? Well, there's a tendency, a perfectly understandable tendency, uh, for creditors uh, to be thinking about the short term. Um, and 
that uh, relies very much uh, on optimistic assumptions about the future. Uh, you can justify almost any debt restructuring proposal uh, if you're prepared to be uh, very optimistic about the future. So interest rates stay low, the country's economy recovers quickly, uh, they discover uh, oil under the presidential palace. Um, you know, you can you can spin almost any scenario you want. And there have been a number of countries in the last ten years or so that have done debt restructurings uh, that turned out uh, not to be durable. That lasted for two or three years, and then they would have to redo it again. Belize, for example, has had to uh, redo its debt restructuring three times in the last ten years. Um, but it's it's a perfectly understandable position for the creditors. Uh, a creditor, <laughs> if one were speak, speaking frankly, a creditor would say to the sovereign, look, uh, one of two things has got to happen. Uh, either the debt relief that we propose to give you today will turn out to be adequate and your country will return to prosperity, in which case all will be well, uh, or it won't. Uh, in which case, you know where we are, you'll call us back, and we'll have to redo this again. Uh, and that creditor might go on to argue uh, that uh, if in the course of a debt restructuring, creditors are asked to give more debt relief than the country needs to recover its, its financial and economic footing, uh, then they've made an unnecessary contribution. Uh, uh, and they particularly take that view when it comes to principal haircuts. Uh, creditors will say principal haircuts like true love are forever. Uh, and once we agree to reduce the amount of our claim, there's no recovery for that. So that's that's the argument. It's, it's perfectly understandable from the creditor standpoint, uh, but... Uh, it it is often it often can produce an unsatisfactory outcome for the sovereign and and the reason is as the IMF economists will be quick to tell you do a debt restructuring where the market does not perceive the debt restructuring as sufficient uh, to allow the country to recover its economic prosperity and the market will. Uh, not lend the country the money that will make that recovery possible. In other words, uh, the market will view that debt restructuring as nothing more than the than the uh, ticket to the next debt restructuring, and therefore the the fund economists will argue you need to achieve not just a sustainable uh, debt position; it must be visibly sustainable. Yeah, and I, I guess that sort of circles back to your point on on the, the importance of having um, you know the IMF sort of sign off on, on a restructuring and deem it sustainable. I think it, it would probably be difficult to argue that um, any plan is sort of visibly sustainable if one of uh, the, the sovereign's largest creditors isn't standing behind it. Yeah. Uh, look, the IMF gets it wrong sometimes. We all know that. Uh, to their credit, uh, they're usually pretty candid about admitting it if they've gotten it wrong. Uh, this is not an absolute science. A lot of things go into a debt sustainability analysis. Uh, but uh, the IMF is the only institution on the planet that both purports to have the technical competence but more importantly, the political legitimacy to try to make those judgments when it comes to sovereign debtors. Uh, and, and the market, um, while they may, uh, may believe that the fund does get it wrong from time to time, the market generally wants to see that well, good housekeeping seal of approval is probably too much, but, but uh, uh, that uh, assessment 
by uh, the IMF as part of a sovereign debt restructuring. Um, and then lastly, for, for, for younger or new practitioners, um, which sovereign restructuring case studies, uh, whether it be Greece, um, Argentina, um, you know, what, what, what would you say are some, some must-know um, sovereign restructuring case studies that, that we should be studying up on? The ones that I think are most uh, interesting, uh, Uruguay in 2003, uh, which was uh, a situation, Uruguay, as you know, is a neighbor of Argentina. It had been largely brought down by the Argentine crisis. It started in 2002. Um, But the Uruguay authorities at the time uh, did not follow Argentina's lead and suggest that they needed massive haircuts. Uh, They had 19 bonds in the international market. Um, They concluded they simply needed a breathing space And so they proposed that each of those bonds, the maturity date of each of those bonds be extended by five years. So the whole curve moved out five years. Uh, They left the coupons. uh, They kept the coupons as they were in the original bonds. That came to be known as a reprofiling. And it turned out to work. No further debt relief was ever needed for Uruguay. Uruguay's been back to the market dozens of times Uh, since then. It's regarded, I think, as one of the most successful sovereign debt workouts of the modern era. Uh, Another one that was fascinating was Iraq in uh, uh, starting in 2004 after the ouster of Saddam Hussein. He left behind a a debt stock of $140 billion owed to an astonishing variety of creditors, uh, not just banks and bondholders, but uh, suppliers, contractors who'd never been paid. Uh, And that debt restructuring, which was carried out, of course, um, under uh, uh, tense political circumstances, the, the coalition uh, led by the United States and, and Great Britain, of course, had an army uh, in Iraq at the time. Um, the mandate there was to provide the new governments of Iraq with very considerable debt relief uh, in order to try to stabilize Iraq. And that debt restructuring will be very much a model for what happens in Venezuela because uh, not so much in the financial terms but simply in the methodology that uh, will have to be used because uh, the Venezuelan debt stock is similarly very diverse in terms of creditors. There, There are bondholders, there are banks, uh, but there are unpaid suppliers uh, there are arbitration award holders from people that have had their investments confiscated. It's it's a welter of uh, different types of creditors, and the only debt restructuring in the modern era that had to address something like that was Iraq. Um, and so the techniques, not not the financial outcome necessarily, but the techniques used in Iraq will be will be relevant there. So they're they're. Look, <laughs> uh, some debt re- sovereign debt restructurings are done well. Uh, some are done poorly. Um, they are never pleasant. Uh, so no one is ever smiling at the end of a sovereign debt restructuring. Success, I think, is measured uh, by how the market remembers uh, the process, whether the authorities uh, are perceived to have behaved in a mature and moderate way, uh, have asked for the debt relief they need, not necessarily the debt relief that they might want, but the debt relief that they reasonably need, uh, whether they uh, have committed themselves to a 
fiscal program that will correct whatever the circumstances are that brought them to the point of needing a debt restructuring. Those are all the indicia of a successful debt restructuring. And we have a number of examples of countries that that have done it right. Wow, thank you so much. This has been uh, very helpful. I know I personally can't wait to sort of listen to this over and over. Um, It's been a tremendous learning experience for myself, and hopefully it will be for our listeners as well. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but thank you so much again. Sure, sure thing. Good to be with you. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, find all of our podcasts on the media page on reorg.com or on iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg. I'm Connor Skelding.